Stephen. Hello, Stephen. How are you doing? I am good. I'm enjoying the good weather. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm relishing it. I'm gonna gonna drink it all in while I can because I know that uh, I'll blink and it'll be the end of August again. This happens to me every year that uh, the summer just flies by and then it's August and that's when I'm like, okay, I'm ready to start enjoying summer and it's gone. So this okay, year I, I plan to enjoy the good weather while it's here so that I'm not at the end of August saying, where did it all go? All right. Well, here's my question for you because last time we talked, you had not. Have you got your snow tires off yet? No, not yet. <laughs> okay, come on. Meet us halfway here. Get, you know, get your I, found, snow tires. I found a place to, uh, <laughs> to get it done. Remember, I'm, I'm out in the boonies, so yeah. they're not everywhere. Um, but I found a place to get it done. Now I just got to call them and arrange it. Mr. Haney's. Yeah. Yeah. No, he brought the truck around. He came to you, Mr. Haney. Yeah. <laughs> um, so stuff to talk. I mean, we talked about uh, Israel-Palestine last time and it, it animated some conversations online. It certainly did. Um, as that topic always does. So now we're um, going to do something a lot less controversial. <laughs> yeah. We thought we would step it down. A little. Yeah. Residential yeah. schools. Residential schools. Um, and of course, we're being sarcastic about it being less, uh, less uh, serious or less uh, uh, controversial, because it certainly is. It's an ongoing black eye in on Canada's history. Now, the recent discovery of I, I should remember this exactly how many bodies was, was well, discovered? with with uh, ground searching radar, they, they've identified, they think, 215 uh, graves at the uh, Kamloops Indian Residential School. Now, uh, of them, 51, uh, there, were, there were 51 known, known deaths, and they believe that 51 of the bodies that they've discovered using radar uh are are identified oh well they're they're known but you know they're unmarked graves so you don't know who is who but uh, you know that leaves uh, another 100 and, uh, 164 uh that are unidentified and so far yeah so far and i mean this doesn't tell us anything new about the tragic history of residential schools in this country uh i suspect that if they do um uh, exhume bodies to study them, they'll probably find uh, a lot of them died of tuberculosis, which was not uncommon uh, during certain times uh, in our history. Uh, I don't think you'll find that they, like, I would be very surprised if you found that they were murdered. I think that uh, they probably died of lack of supplies and neglect more than anything else. Well, yeah, because the residential schools were, were infamous for, you know, having poor levels of nutrition poor levels of housing, uh, you know, inadequate clothing, inadequate heat. Uh, and like you said, you know, tuberculosis was, was, was rampant among children, just generally, I mean, childhood diseases and childhood mortality, uh, you know, up until 40 years ago, you know, basically vaccines and, and good nutrition following World War II for, 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 for white Canada anyway, um, brought down infant mortality, but infant mortality among all populations was, was shocking at the turn of the last century. 
And, uh, you know, it was even more shocking for indigenous populations. You know, they think that, um, you know, using um, the statistics that they have, that they think that uh, infant mortality was terrible for, for, for European populations, but it was about four times worse for indigenous populations, especially those in, uh, in residential schools, because diseases just ran right through them because the children were weakened because of poor treatment by poor conditions, poor diet, and they were packed in. And there, it was incredibly inadequate medical care too. So children died in droves in these schools. And, and this was well known because it was, it formed a big part of, I think it was volume four of the, um, of the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report from 2009, which had an entire section on graves and identifying those who died mm -hmm. in residential schools. So like you said, sadly, this is not surprising. I mean, it isn't news, uh, but it is, you know, one more chapter in the long and tragic ongoing story of the treatment of uh, Indigenous peoples in, in Canada and North America. Yeah, and, you know, it's, I'm not sure what to do with this information. Um, it's clearly further underlines the message that uh, native groups have been telling us, uh, which I don't believe anybody, any non-native person or in any large number in Canada is contesting, which is that natives were very poorly treated and uh, the residential schools are one of the jewels in the crown of the horrendousness of the, the, the institutional, uh, I mean, you wanna talk about an attempt at uh, uh, cultural genocide. That is very much what the residential schools were. They were trying very hard to, uh, to uh, shake the heathen out of these uh, native people. They wanted to make them into good Christian folk. Um, I think that uh, at the time, with the prevailing sentiment at the time, which was heavily bigoted, um, they thought they were doing something good for these people. Um, yeah, well, yeah, they they thought they were they were they were ushering them into the modern age of civilization, and then they bandied around the word civilized a lot, and getting them away from you know uh, sort of the the natural life of of, uh, of North American uh, uh, native people, and like you said, they thought. You know, two things. One, they thought they were civilizing them, uh, and the other one was they thought they were saving their souls because all you know when you look at the residential schools, they were run by religious organizations, and that you know it it, it was because social services up until 50, 60 years ago were all religious based because there weren't any social services. The government didn't provide services. They didn't provide healthcare. They didn't provide, you know, orphanages. They didn't, you know, there wasn't public money for that kind of stuff. Or public and they were will all... for there to be money for that kind no. of thing. And it, it grew out of the Victorian era where charities were run by religious groups, uh, you know, and they were, you know, they were run, you know, first for 
charitable purposes, you know, because they thought it was, you know, part of their Christian duty to look after people, mm -hmm. you know, look after in, in big air quotes. And uh, also, you know, they collected alms for it and they gave them an opportunity to save souls as well. You know, whether those were children on the slums, uh, in the slums of London, England, um, who weren't, uh, you know, who'd strayed from Christian teaching and all the rest and were living, you know, lives of sin, or the unconverted people who never had been raised in a Christian environment in the first place, and it was part of the missionary th uh, um, thing. So the, the churches had sort of these two things. It was their Christian duty to look after the poor, and it was also their Christian duty to convert people. And you know, sometimes that was done, uh, you know, at the end of a of a very sharp stick. You know, the interesting thing is the, the notion that native uh societies weren't civilized that they weren't there i mean they had very much their own structures their own civilizations their own traditions but because they differed from the european definition of what a society should be and what it should look like and so on they determined that in comparison the uh the indigenous people were not civilized and that's i mean you want to talk about ingrained bigotry just because their circumstances and their beliefs and their traditions are different than yours, these were not wild uh, rampaging gangs. They weren't, you know, I was going to say they weren't the Huns, but even the Huns had some organization. Um, they were very organized societies and they were no more warlike than European nations. Um, I mean, granted, you know, that a lot of, uh, uh, indigenous uh, tribes made war with each other, just as humans have done in Europe and in Africa and in Asia. I mean, it's a human condition, but they were, they were no less people of reason, um, people of uh, goodwill, and, and uh, no less organized within their their. Uh, their civilization than the European civilization was. It was simply different. Yeah, and you know a lot of the differences. I mean, there's sort of like again, there's always a lot to unpack with these sorts of things. No, oh, yeah. I mean, the the whole idea of progress was a very 19th century European idea. I mean, it's very it's interesting that a lot of people up until about 1800 didn't understand that there was a concept called progress i mean which is a which is a human construct but the idea that one generation would be better off than another would have new technologies new inventions new institutions just didn't exist before about 18 well before before napoleon before the french revolution mm -hmm. because everything every day was the same as the day before your, your life never got any better the tools you used were never any different the clothes looked exactly the same things didn't change in a large, large part of human history. And then all of a sudden we get the age of progress, which was the age of technology and industrialization. And there became a philosophy of progress that things got better and that we were moving towards a better world, towards perfection. 
and you know we're learning more we're becoming more enlightened all of that kind of stuff and so there's that very european idea of progress and that we're moving inexorably towards it uh, that you know that is just basically the human condition is we are always going to strive to be better and do things differently and better and, and more efficiently and more profitably and all the rest and that that you know is a very fairly modern european concept and uh the europeans looked at indigenous populations said well there's no progress here because they don't want to change the way they live they don't want to uh you know they don't want to learn how to farm better or any uh, any of the rest and mm -hmm. so they they looked at them as as not civilized because they didn't believe in the idea of progress as a concept and the other problem of course was that the indigenous populations in north america uh, were incredible in incredibly bad shape. I mean, they were in bad shape because, with contact with the European world, disease ran through and killed off ninety percent of the population of North and South America, uh, and left their 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 um, their, their uh, cultures just in tatters. Yeah. Because you know, if you lose ninety percent of your population, yeah, that's, it's, that, that's it's, devastating. You can't function. It, it, the social disruption is incredible, and then add on top of that, the forced relocations, the uh, you know being uh, kicked out, you know the wars, uh, you know the uh, the wars of eradication, uh, the uh, you know the uh, the neglect, uh, the you know the reservation system in the United States, and uh, you know the the you know, putting uh, groups into, you know, non, uh, you know, non-viable land. I mean, and we still suffer from that today. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think 90% of the problems that we have with our uh, um, indigenous population is they occupy land that is absent, that is remote and useless and not non-viable. And that's why we gave it to them because we had no use for it. It's far enough away and you couldn't farm it. It wasn't near useful trade routes. We just said, like, here, you can have this. And a well, lot of our problems if it continue been, to be. If it had been of any value, we wouldn't we would have, have given it to them. We would we'd have stolen it. We would have kept it. Yeah. Um, or bought it or treated for it or whatever else. But the whole idea that that they're not civilized is you, you look at the, the way their their culture was treated and the forces that were brought to bear on it from the moving in and the, the you know the colonization of uh, not just the west but you know but all of north america left them in such a poor state culturally that they lost languages they lost art they lost uh, you know their oral histories you know and, and so you can't go back very far and left them much poorer as as a culture and you know they weren't able to compete anyway because you know the the industrial might of the west uh, western world of europe was you know overwhelming uh and incompatible to a pastoral uh you know agrarian um hunter gatherer kind of uh, kind of culture that mm -hmm. that was here mm -hmm. um and it you know we we've seen it happen in other places um, you know, but you know, the, the, the post-Columbian contact in North America is just the most recent example of it. I mean, you know, you know we saw it happen in Africa, we've had, you know, but if you go back even farther, the migrations of humans taking over, you know, with the Roman empire moving into places like Gaul and to Germany and to all kinds of other places, which they considered less civilized, yeah. uh, because they were agrarian and, uh, tribal and, uh, you know, 
some were peaceful, some weren't, but you know, they saw it again, as sort of an early idea of, of progress. We're, we're conveying a benefit on them by bringing them under the Pax Romana, uh, which is just, you know, an earlier version of, you know, the civilizing mission of, uh, of the white man in North America. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we can look back now and we can look at the, certainly, you know, the, the last year under uh, COVID and as we reconsidered sort of the tempo with which our lives had been moving um, and we, we look at, you know, what we consider progress, progress, if you measure it, is um, the last few decades is how much less we were, were earning uh, relative to the economy, um, you know, our purchasing power keeps dropping. The amount of hours we're expected to work keeps increasing. We're on uh, treadmills. We people don't get a chance to spend enough time with their family. Uh, technology has only made this worse. Email has made us on call 24 hours a day, and uh, yeah, we would still call that progress. Um, I think that uh, maybe uh, looking at some of the native attitudes towards how to balance out societies may give us a better idea of, of how to blend our progress going forward. But it's, uh, it's, it's an ongoing black eye. Um, it, again, this doesn't tell us anything we didn't already know, but it reminds us again that we have this black eye in our country that as much as we like to feel that we were better than the United States in with regards to uh, racism, and I do believe that certainly today we are, are leaps and bounds uh, more enlightened when dealing with uh, race issues than uh, the United States is. Uh, we still do have a history that, uh, I don't know, I, I, can we be ashamed of it if we weren't really there and weren't really part of it? Um, but yeah, we can be. We can be ashamed that this was our country. Now, enlightenment grows. We, you know, even in the last 20 years, we have seen changes in attitudes towards the homosexual uh, population, towards, uh, we're seeing a change towards uh, trans people. Um, we've seen uh, progress towards, uh, you know, how uh, black people are accepted in society. It's not uncommon to see mixed race couples and so on now. You see it on TV in ads. It's become quite normalized. Uh, things have, have progressed socially in that way, but um, we do still have uh, some stuff to answer for. And by answer for, I don't mean that people born 50 years ago should feel guilty about what the country did 70 years ago, or even did 50 years ago, because you were too young to have even any knowledge of it. Um, but what we have to do is recognize that it was done uh, in the name of our country, we still enjoy the benefits of this country and its growth. So we do have a responsibility to right wrongs that were done in the past. You don't have to feel guilty to right wrongs. You just have to feel that there was something that was done that was unjust. And we have the knowledge now, the awareness uh, today and the wherewithal to correct what has been done. We can't erase what was done but we can correct going forward the lasting effects of what was done. 
And that's where I think that uh, I think a lot of Canadians are in that. I think, you know, there's people who get resentful. They say, why should I be ashamed or feel responsible? I wasn't there. No, you weren't. But, you know, a country is, is more than just whether you were there or not. This is uh, our ecosystem. This is, this is our, our home and our family, whether, you know, my relatives weren't here uh, 100 years ago. But what was done 100 years ago in the name of Canada is still something I'm responsible for trying to, um, you know, alleviate the suffering caused by patterns and treatment that went on back there and that persisted for decades and that in, in, in many places continues to persist. Yeah, and you know, it, we, you know, we, we talk about the early history of, of residential schools, but you, know, you have to remember that the residential schools were still open and operating in the 70s. Uh, and uh, you know, the people who lived there are still alive and walk among us. And while there may not be intergenerational uh, you know, guilt that we believe in, there certainly is intergenerational trauma. I mean, the Jewish people know all about intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. uh, because they hear the stories about uh, you know, the family members who perished in the Holocaust and what they went through. And that you know, is a recognized psychological uh, um, effect that, you know, that Intergenerational trauma? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, see it in, yeah. I see it in my family. Yeah. Um, I, you know, once I discovered what intergenerational trauma was, um, there were huge markers in my yeah. family, uh, you know, my, my mother's side, especially, uh, her, you know, my grandmother's uh, family was uh, wiped out, uh, little children and her parents and her siblings and cousins, they're all wiped out uh, by the Nazis. And that weighed on her, her entire life. And that colored her stress and her attitudes and i see that in my uh, mother's generation her siblings and i see it in the, the the generation that followed you it's there and this is something that happened uh, you know 70 years ago um that my family's been carrying this now let's talk about something that happened 170 years ago and 200 years ago and how long native families have been carrying this trauma and they've not really been society hasn't been open to them enough uh, and supportive enough for them to be able to deal with this trauma because they keep being re-traumatized. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's the thing about the discovery of, of, of the 215 bodies in Kamloops is it, it opens old wounds. Now, as I said before, it was, it was known, it was well known that there were um, unmarked graves around most residential schools. I mean, this was discussed in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission report. Uh, you know, they tried to put a number on it and they, you know, they, they, I think they came up with about 4,000, which, you know, is, that everyone now says is, is much, sm uh, much uh, too, too, too small. It's mm -hmm. probably, you know, they're now saying maybe 6,000, but, but who knows? And the only way you're going to find out is to actually continue to do this kind of work. Yeah. And there, there is... I, you know, I can't, you know, what do you, what do you do now is always the question, you know, what do we do about it? And, you know, there's all these calls about, about, well, start excavating, start, you know, go, <clears throat> go out and find more of the bodies, identify everybody. And there are projects underway. Now, a lot of people don't realize that there is money set aside in the 2016 and 2019 budgets. Mm -hmm. uh, money was set aside to do exactly this work, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, uh, 
interestingly enough, in the uh, 2009, the one of the uh, one of the requests um, from uh, to the uh, to the government following the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report was that they wanted 1.5 million dollars to do exactly this to go looking for missing children who were buried in unmarked graves around residential schools. And the Harper government said no. Uh, you know, and 1.5 million bucks. I mean, you know, that's 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 a really good lunch in Ottawa. That's that's, that's nothing. Drop, yeah, it's insulting. <clears throat> even they that said it's no. So low, yeah. Now, and in 2016, so change of government, the the the, the first uh, Trudeau uh, majority government, federal government gave 10 million dollars to the research center that searches for residential school graves. Um, and in 2019, 33 million was put towards a national registry, and another 13 was put uh, uh, forward towards um, uh, was earmarked for uh, commemoration. Uh, and you know, and there's a government website where you can go and you can actually see you know the, the recommendations and what's being done. So there is money that has been allocated for exactly this. You know, people are saying you know well, the government has to act. They say, well, the government. You know, since 2016 has set aside money to do exactly this. And there was an article uh, just uh, a couple of days ago, you know, actually, yeah, I think it was just yesterday, where, you know, everyone is going, like, treating this like it's news. Um, but, you know, the catalyst is, is the, you know, the discovery of the body saying like, okay, Trudeau, what are you going to do about this? And, and Trudeau was, was asked, I think it was a global reporter asked to say, well, you've got this money, what are you doing? And, and, and here comes the problem about moving quickly and all the rest. Trudeau said, you know, said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Report said, it's not up to the federal government to, to move unilaterally on Indigenous affairs. Uh, that's what got us all in this trouble in the first place. This is, you, you've got to have the buy-in and the participation and the consent of the various First Nations and Indigenous groups to go ahead and, and spend this money on discovering the graves and doing paper research because it's not at all clear whether or not there is documentary evidence of all of the deaths. I'm, I'd be very surprised that it didn't exist at some point because residential schools kept records. They had they had uh, money. They had you know you had to know how many students there were. Uh, there were ledgers. You know, one thing the Victorians were really good at was keeping records. And, you know, there must have been gov some government records as well at the time. Now, the question is, were those records destroyed by the Catholic Church? You know, especially when all the lawsuits were, were flying around in the uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, and, and right through to today. You know, were they quietly shredded to uh, to to hide their uh, their tracks? But there are probably in archives, in documents, which the church may or may not be forthcoming with, uh, that, that give you the names. I mean, they were able to identify 51 of the people from the Kamloops Indian Residential School, and their names are on the, uh, are on, on the, on the website, the government website about this. So if they did 51 of the names, why didn't they record the other 150, 160 names? They probably did. Now, uh, unmarked graves in, in residential schools are, are not uh, unusual at all. Uh, and in fact, they're not uh, particular to 
in, uh, uh, in what they called Indian residential schools. So, you know, well, First Nations Aboriginal in, uh, residential schools. There's a, a, you might remember there was this big story back in 2014 um, of uh, a, a Catholic church in Ireland running schools um, uh, and, and nun, uh, uh, nuns were running orphanages and, and, uh, and, and schools for children. Mm -hmm. And they discovered a, a septic tank on the, on the, the uh, uh, um, a Catholic nun run home in, uh, it's Tuam, County Galloway in mm -hmm. Ireland. Uh, and they found 800 bodies of children between the ages of about 35 weeks to three years old. And they were, they were, and forensic examination found that most of them were buried in the 1950s. Um, so this isn't particularly just an indigenous thing. It, it is a way, you know, you'd be tempted to say it's a Catholic thing because most of these institutions seem to be run by the Catholic church. But the way we've treated young people, if you go back in history, just a little bit has been just, uh, just shocking. In fact, you know, the residential schools were based on uh, English industrial schools, they were called. Um, you know, they started in the middle of the 1800s to solve the problem of juvenile vacancy in England, I mean, these are white kids we're talking about, mm -hmm. um, and they were, you know, they were, the, the government forcibly removed what they considered to be poor children or neglected children from their home environment and put them in boarding schools, and they give judges the power to just basically snatch children and mm -hmm. put them in these industrial residential schools. And, you know, and they did the same thing in Scotland and the same thing in Ireland. So it, again, context is really important, I mean, especially a historical one. Um, the, you know, the, the, the English speaking world was doing this to children, not just native children, they were doing this to English children, to Scottish children, to Irish children. Mm -hmm. And there are these tragedies that are kind of cookie cuttered all through history from this period. And in fact, residential schools grew in Canada, grew out of the British industrial school model, which was also adopted in the United States. And in fact, one of the architects of, um, of the residential schools went down to the United States to look at their industrial schools to see whether or not it would be a good model for dealing with the uh, Aboriginal children in Canada. And, you know, it came back and said, you know, this is, this is a great way to, to, to look after a bunch of children. Um, you know, it, it teaches them a trade, it teaches them English language, teaches them the skills that they're going to need to live in an English country called Canada. Um, now, they turned it over to people who were not supervised, were brutal, were sadistic, uh, you know, used, uh, you know, were, were religious fanatics and often case and were far enough away from the public view to the extent that there was a public view because there was no Twitter, there was, there was barely newspapers, that there was no oversight at all. They weren't government run institutions and they were accountable to nobody. And they were dealing with an incredibly vulnerable population who had no power themselves, no agency at all to complain because, you know, the indigenous populations in Canada in the 18. 80s, 1890s, right through, have had no voice. So, you know, when you have people with absolute power over vulnerable children with no oversight and no brakes on them, uh, 
tragedies are going to happen. And, you know, like they happened in Ireland with the 800 kids. And I'm not making, I'm not saying, you know, the, the situations are, are, are comparable at all. And, it, you know, it, it's not an excuse that, look, it's happening to white people too. So, you know, what's your well, problem? No, it's it's like, where the structures came from. Yeah, the structures came from. And, you know, this abuse of children um, is, is really not very well known. I mean, and when it happened, you know, when it came to light in, in, uh, in Ireland, uh, you know, people were shocked. I mean, they may have been doubly shocked because it was happening to white people, but uh, but it was, you know, the way the world was working back then. I mean, I even know, you know, my in my ancestry, uh, my like second or third great grandfather was given away as a child to the neighbors um, as as labor, and it wasn't sort of like you know, he, you know, really. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is in Canada. This is in Upper Canada, in like in 1853, I think it was. Uh, he was uh, you know, the family couldn't feed him, and they said, you know, he's he's like seven years old. He can work on a farm. So he's seven years old. Yeah, yeah. give him away. You know, and uh, they gave him to a neighbor, uh, you know, or, or someone that was far enough away that you know he couldn't come home, or you know, he he now belonged. He wasn't part of the family. He belonged to them, and was uh, you know uh, cheap labor slept in the barn, wasn't treated like, uh, like, like family, given all the terrible crappy jobs um, and treated basically like a slave to the point where in 1854, he ran away. Um, you know, at, at, he was like eight years old and he, he ran basically halfway across Canada to join his brother in Toronto. Uh, but the way we treated children back in the 1800s was often brutal and terrible. The ones who lived through infant mortality and they lived through tuberculosis and and uh, and uh, you know all the childhood diseases that we now take for granted don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible, terrible life in in rural North America, for for even for white kids. So imagine what it was like if you were an Aboriginal kid um, at the at the tender mercies of uh, of complete strangers who hate hate your way of life, hate your language hate your, you know, that you're not uh, of the same religion and are basically considered no better than beasts of burden. Uh, these things are going to inevitably happen. And, you know, we're now just starting to realize just how terrible, you know, it, it was, uh, particularly the residential school system and how much we have to atone for that. And we've done that a little bit because there, there were, you know, not that money solves everything. There was compensation paid to uh, the residential school uh, uh, survivors and their families, um, based on you know, based on their experience, and I think it was like three point one billion dollars was was paid out um, as compensation uh, to the residential school survivors. But you know, we, there's still lots of commemoration and healing that has to be done around that. Uh, but part of the problem has been, uh, and this uh, goes back to what Trudeau was saying when Trudeau was being asked, like, well you've got the, all this money set aside, like I said, like $10 million for, for a research center to search for the graves and another uh, $43 million for a registry and, uh, and commemoration, uh, you know, and they've only spent about $5 million of that since it was set up. And they say, well, why is it so slow? And Trudeau said, well, number one, we've, we, we can't just like send out a bunch of people with shovels and start digging because we have to consult with the local indigenous groups uh you know whose children these were we have to agree on a way forward we have to agree you know there's lots of things to do uh you know a lot of indigenous um 
prohibitions exist on uh, how you treat bodies. Now, in Europe, you know, if you watch any of the British archaeology shows, I love British archaeology shows, they're always digging in some farmer's field and finding skulls. And some of them are high women who died, uh, you know, 150 years ago, some of them are Vikings, some of them are Romans, some of them are just, you know, Britons who were walking around minding their own business, uh, you know, 1500 years ago. And they take a very archaeological approach to it. You know, it's like, well, you know, we'll treat them res with respect, but what can we learn from them? North American, generally, um, uh, First Nations culture doesn't like you messing with bodies. Um, and there's, you know, even at the uh, Kamloops uh, residential school, there's a discussion going on right now about whether you leave the bodies in place. Uh, do, you, uh, do you repatriate them? Do you dig them up and rebury them? I mean, with with dignity and all that. But what sort of scientific experiments can 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 you perform on them? You know, forensic pathology to find out DNA, so you can trace them back to exist uh, still uh, living relatives, which I would think would be very important if it was my family. Mm -hmm. What they died of, and that you know, trying to figure out whether or not they died of typhus or tuberculosis, or scarlet fever, or meningitis, or any of, or malnutrition, or, you know, I keep seeing there should be a criminal investigation, except for the whole idea that the residential school system today would be considered criminal in and of itself. The odds are that very, very, very few of these, these, these poor children who they're discovering were the, the victims of, of murder. Uh, they were certainly victims of neglect and malnutrition. Yeah. And while there was tons of corporal punishment and there were beatings and all the rest, uh, and medical neglect, I suspect that very few were what we would consider to be murdered, um, except as part of a genocidal policy that was sort of generally applied to the entire population. Um, but you'd still want to know that. I mean, you know, you'd have a pathologist report to say, you know, this person, this person was stabbed. This person was was something else. Uh, you'd want to know that. But the the the, the customs for an awful lot of of uh, indigenous um, uh, groups is that you shouldn't be messing with the remains of of their dead. So that kind of handicaps you a little bit in being able to to figure out who's who and what they died of. And the bigger problem is you don't get consensus from the, um, from the First Nations uh, Indigenous partners about what to do, even within their own groups. Well, people, um, are, people think, sometimes think that First Nations is a monolith. Yeah. Uh, there are, I don't know, last count, how many uh, tribes and, and different groupings make up i keep seeing nations. i keep seeing 500 being kicked around but it could be could be any and, numbered and you know some are more populous than others and like any other groups of humans there's going to be differences of opinion differences of tradition within that you know it's it's you mentioned these things these difficulties that uh trudeau mentioned and there's people who will just shout that these are just excuses but in fact, they're not excuses. They're actually sound reasons that are that actually demonstrate respect for native traditions. It's you know it, it's like the the uh, court that uh, recommended uh, the government pay out a certain amount of money towards uh, settlements. Uh, I forget the exact amount for uh, to children. Uh, and uh, Trudeau, they appealed it. They appealed not the 
decision to give out the money they, to that individual. No, they they but they wanted the court had imposed a time limit and the government couldn't process the payments within that time limit. So they were appealing the time limit, not appealing um, the uh, the decision to pay reparations. And people continued to misrepresent it as Trudeau is fighting against paying reparations that the court said they have to pay. It's like, no, they've already said that they have no problem paying these reparations. They're going to pay them. They just don't want to wind up being in breach because the government can't move fast enough to uh, fulfill the deadline put down by the court, um, which is people say that's an excuse. No, you know, government government operations, they move slowly. And this notion that, well, if you really wanted to, you could move them faster comes from people who've never actually worked in large operations. And, and uh, the government is certainly the largest you're going to oh, deal with. And all you got to do is look at, you know, a recent example was the, uh, the wet sweat and uh, uh, hereditary chiefs uh, who were you know, Enbridge's uh, Northern Gateway tar sands oil uh, pipeline and then later the coastal gas link. Uh, you know, it was just in, in the news, you know, it seems like not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, you know, the problem was that that the uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs opposed the coastal gas link, but all 20 elected First Nation councils along the route supported the project, including five elected Wet'suwet'en band councils. So then you get into the weeds about who speaks for a particular Indigenous group, who, you know, you know if, it's, if it's a provincial government, you've got a premier right or wrong they speak you know you know they've got they are a source of authority but within non-traditional fairly flat hierarchies or traditional hierarchies which is you know often the case with uh, with first nations mm-hmm. I, you don't necessarily know who has the final say so you know you do a deal like like they did with the coastal gas link uh, they thought with with all 20 elected First Nation councils along the route, and you go like, we got it sewn up. We've got all 20 of them on side, mm-hmm. including you know five five who were elected uh, from uh, by the Wet'suwet'en, uh, and we're going to put a, put this pipeline in. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the hereditary chiefs, who are a separate power structure, say, no, we don't agree. And say, but your elected guys already said yes, no, but we are the hereditary guys, and it's like yeah. guys, guys and gals. Uh, so it was, you know, both men and women. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, what's the way forward then? You know, what's the decision structure? And one of the problems that governments have had in, in moving the ball along in a, in a reasonably quick way is the stakeholders are diverse and they're not always obvious. And and like like any elected government or appointed government, they change their minds from time to time over policy because people change in and out of the jobs, and someone has a different opinion than yeah. the person who wasn't there before them. So things move really slowly. So the same has been for the discovery of graves, uh, unmarked mass graves at uh, residential schools. Mm-hmm. Is each one represents one or more different bands or tribes, as they used to call them, uh, at the time it was being done. And you've got to get buy-in from not just those groups, but the groups within those groups, and get a consensus to go forward on, are we digging 
here are we digging here when we dig what do we do when we find what kind of tests do we do i mean the most uh, you know inoffensive thing you can do is what they're doing right now which is sort of passive ground radar where you basically run what looks like a lawnmower and they use it for mining and all kinds of other things too yeah, we, yeah. it's basically the same sort of thing that uh, uh, you know that uh, that beachcombers use um only a little more sophisticated it doesn't detect metal that it, it bounces images back um, with different densities and different materials in the ground through you know ground penetrating radar but it doesn't disturb the land it doesn't disturb the people uh, who were buried underneath I mean but it gives you sort of a map of what it is but until you actually open up the earth and see what you've got you don't know age gender uh, you don't know you know the, what they died of you can't uh, do DNA tests and all the rest. But that's where the problem is. You can't get people to agree to that next step of, you know, if it was, you know, if it was insensitive white people like they do in England. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they found anomalies under a parking lot in England. And uh, so, you know, when they're going to build, you know, they do this in England all the time, they, you know, they build something new and they find a Roman fort. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, this time they were, it was a parking lot and they were going to build something. They, they, they did radar, they did some archeology. span and they found Richard III, the, yeah, the King of yeah. England. <laughs> yeah. And I, there's no question of like, okay, just like, just leave them there uh, because you know, it'd be wrong to disturb them. It's like, no, let's find out about this. I mean, scientific curiosity is important because it adds to our, our combined humanity and understanding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, and if it was, you know, if, it, if, if I was God King of the world, uh, you know, I would be, I would be doing careful, respectful excavation of all of the residential areas to find every last body and identify them as best I could with DNA and then find out what the family wants done with, with the remains and inter them decently, pay for the whole thing all the way along. But that's a unilateral decision by one person doing this. And that's what the federal government has said, hey, we've been down this road before where we've made unilateral decisions about what we thought were best for our indigenous people. Mm -hmm. It was wrong and we're still paying for it. So, okay, everyone around the table and tell us what you want. And you end up with a stalemate because everyone is outraged. Um, everyone thinks it's terrible, but no one can agree what to do next. Yeah, it's... Uh... One thing I don't like is the political opportunism that has you know the, the the trending on twitter pierre trudeau people saying that trudeau pierre trudeau was uh, prime minister while the residential schools still existed and he was also out, the prime minister when they ended it <laughs> yeah well and they leave out the other prime ministers conservative prime ministers and liberal prime ministers who were in government while the residential schools was going on, clearly because they're trying to tar the current Trudeau in office yeah. uh, and tie him somehow to be morally culpable for the, the, existence, the continued existence of residential schools when his father was prime minister. And to me, this is just so disrespectful to the entire dialogue of trying to uh, build reconciliation when you're taking something very, very uh, sacred to native people, to indigenous people, and very uh, tragic uh, to them, very close to the heart. And you're taking this human tragedy and you're trying to recycle it into a political attack line. I think that is crass. 
It is disrespectful. I don't think that it has legs. It, re it reveals just the ongoing weakness of the opposition parties in trying to find a, some traction to use against Justin Trudeau. And uh, it, it really is not a good look on them. No, and you know, especially you know, the conservatives themselves. You know, they had uh, you know, famously uh, the uh, the former uh, senator Lynn Bayak, who you know, posted all of these these scurrilous letters about, you know, with all of the uh, the racist tropes about you know, lazy Indians and all the rest. Yeah. You know, Pierre Pierre Paulev, who is a current you know, um, big deal in the conservative caucus. You know, he, he, there's a quote uh, floating around where he basically said, you know, our our our. Uh, Indigenous population doesn't need another handout. What they need is a job that will give them dignity, and it's, and it's playing into all of these sort of old, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 19th century tropes about you know about the lazy Indian, about uh, you know that they're you know shiftless and good for nothing and drunks and you know all the all of the myths that exist around uh, you know uh, around that that were really embraced by a lot of people um, of all political stripes. Uh, but particularly by conservatives who were really the architects of this. I mean, Hector Langevin and, uh, you, know, you know, Sir Johnny MacDonald, I mean, the, the real architects of these sorts of things. And yes, it continued um, partially because people didn't know what else to do about it. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said before, there really wasn't a social welfare system up until about 50 years ago. And mm. so all these children were just given over to the tender mercies of the Catholic Church and the Methodist Church and the United Church and a couple of others, but you know, mostly the Catholic Church were, were seemed to have most of the problems and were left unsupervised to, to, to just do what they wanted with a whole vulnerable population. But the conservatives, you know, saying this and trying to tar the liberals with it, I mean, I know they love to, to say, okay, you know, the liberals are hypocrites. They talk a good game, but they don't do anything. You know, what about what about those boil water advisories? You know, forget the fact that the boil water advisories have moved down in numbers more than they've moved in decades. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there still are a couple of them, and there are challenges again to to providing clean water in in remote locations. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but that's that's a, a, a topic for another day. It, it doesn't excuse inaction, but it also but it recognizes the realities of how difficult this is to do. Um, but you know, the conservatives want to grab the liberals and say, "Look out, you guys are hypocrites." You you know, you talk a good game. Conservatives, you know, they're not hypocrites. They've always had a uh, a uh, policy of of not so benign neglect for mm -hmm. our uh, indigenous population. And even though Harper was the one who actually made you know gave the apology. Uh, public apology for uh, the residential schools, um, you know, around the time of the uh, of the report of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, he's also the one who turned down the 1.5 million dollars in order to go and look for graves. It's, uh, you know, I I hope that reconciliation can happen. I know that uh, the current federal government, in comparison to previous federal governments, is really taking uh, taking it seriously and doing its best to try to, uh, to try to affect reconciliation. Um, I know that uh, it appears to me that uh, the overwhelming majority of indigenous people want to move towards reconciliation. Um, there's always going to be a few noisy voices that have other opinions. But again, 
that's that's human condition that's human nature uh i i like the fact that uh canadians are alarmed by this it's not just something that that alarms indigenous people that uh canadians in you know by and large are revolted by the discovery of these bodies because it shows that indigenous issues don't only matter to indigenous people anymore that uh, the notion of, of fairness uh, towards indigenous people today uh, is something that is is generally shared uh, across the political spectrum uh, leaving out the extremes and to me that is an encouraging sign yeah and you know outrage is important because it it tells us very clearly what is right and what is wrong and what we should feel bad about. And, you know, I've, I've seen genuine tears, uh, even among politicians, about, you know, the discovery and, uh, and the tragedy of these 215 children of so many that we have not yet discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've, but when you have that outrage, you have to do something with it. I mean, you have to turn it into positive action. You have to use it to mobilize you. It's one thing just to you know, beat people up and, 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 uh, you know, say this, you know, this is terrible. And, you know, you're to blame, you're to blame. No, you're to blame. We're going to take the names of all these people off of all these buildings, mm-hmm. which is probably, uh, probably a pretty good first step because, you know, there aren't a lot of Adolf Hitler high schools out there for some reason, uh, you know, for a good reason. Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots of things you can do to make people feel better and mobilize that outrage. But part of it is you have to start getting together and saying, okay, what is it we're going to do? Mm. You know, there's money set aside to document the names, to, you know, go through the archives, to find people, to trace relatives, to, you know, to, you know, to, um, to, to go through the stories. And, you know, this is a real you know, historical mystery that needs to be solved. And there just has to be the will and the cooperation on all sides yeah. to find a way forward and actually get it behind you because you could never get it behind you. All you do is you keep going into the circle of outrage because there will be more bodies found. There, there absolutely will be more bodies found. I mean, you, you won't be able to dig in the garden of most of these former residential schools without finding the tragic victims of the residential school system. You want to be able to someday put an end to the open wound that it is, and then you can start healing. But until then, it's just an endless cycle of, of outrage. Well, I think that uh, us two white guys uh, yeah. have talked about this um, uh, as much as we can. Um, and while some people say, why are two white guys talking about it? Well, I think it's important to get a pulse on how people who aren't Indigenous feel about it, because it shows that, uh, again, it's not an Indigenous issue anymore. It is a Canadian issue, a Canadian issue of right, Canadian issue of fairness. And it's important that voices outside of the affected community speak up and say that this is not acceptable. Because often, I've experienced this in in my life in workplaces, where if uh, a member or members of the affected group speak up, they're not listened to because people say, well, you're too close to it. You don't have proper perspective on it. But when somebody outside of the affected group speaks up, all of a sudden things happen. All of a sudden things start to move because they can't be dismissed the same way. So I think it's important for people of all backgrounds to speak about 
uh, reconciliation and uh, the importance of making it happen. And uh, I think that that is an indication of modern Canada. We believe, you know, we generally believe in fairness and decency. And there are examples of, of exceptions, but I think that overall, part of the Canadian identity is uh, reasonableness, uh, acceptance, and, and fairness. And yeah. uh, we're going to keep working towards that. Yeah, and you know, part of part of any history is understanding it, warts and all. You know, to recognize that there there are failings. I mean, there are lots of people who will point out that, uh, and, and I've pointed out before that you know that history is complicated and messy, that people are complicated and messy. There are people who are you know great uh, heroes in some parts of their lives and absolute villains in other parts of their lives, and you know the question is what do you do with that well you have to understand it because you can't come to terms with it until you actually understand it and if you are part of the dominant majority in in Canada you know which is you know white people then you've got to be able to understand how you got here and recognize that you know that there was a genocide in this, this country, that uh, that uh, we the way we treated the uh, the original inhabitants of Canada was shameful, and that you know we wouldn't be here but for that, and atone for it and incorporate that into uh, in, into our history. It doesn't mean that we have to wear our hair shirt all the time and feel bad about our, ourselves constantly, but we have to acknowledge that you know you get the good and the bad together, and until you face up both of it, you can't really move forward. A good place for us to uh, come in for a landing this week. Yeah, well, I'm sure next week will bring us more more treasures to talk about. Well, it's the news cycle, right? And, uh, and maybe you'll have your snow tires off. <laughs> let's let's wait and see. You know what? This is going to be my goal for next it's gonna, week. It's going to be my... my snow tires off. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you got to have goals because last last summer I left them on the whole time. <laughs> Oh, yeah. uh, oh, you didn't. I did. <laughs> okay. All I right. did. So All this right. year I want to get them, I want to have them removed. So next week, the goal is by next week to report back to have my snow tires changed. I, I feel like doing a GoFundMe to just get your, your snow tires off. Yeah, I don't think GoFundMe uh, pushes people. You can't create motivation. <laughs> um, so I will get that done. And uh, we will talk again next week. Stephen Lawton's can be found on Twitter at Stephen Lawton's, which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. Um, and we have a Facebook page as well. Feel free to chime in with your two cents worth. Uh, we've given you ours, so we're glad to hear yours. And that's it. Stephen, thank you. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. I'm Stephen Kersner, and you've been listening to Stephen and Stephen. <laughs> <laughs>